we have been talking about, as I said, living in the dimension beyond average because most Christians you know, and maybe even you, live with your feet firmly planted in the world of average. Wasn't that way with the early church? I remind you that they went in a matter of days. They had just received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. Pentecost means 50. It was 50 days after Jesus was crucified that the Holy Spirit fell. I want you to think about this with me right now. And so there's, only, there's been less than two months' time that has transpired. And you would think if they would kill the founder, the leader of the church, right? That the followers are in serious trouble. Not so. God caused everything to change and go 180 degrees the opposite direction. And suddenly the people that were no doubt standing at the cross yelling, crucify him, are now clamoring to get saved and get born again. Acts 2 concludes by saying the Lord added to the church daily. It's only a couple of chapters later that the Bible says the disciples multiplied. Multitudes started coming into the church as God repositioned the church in the minds of the people of that community. There was a seismic shift that occurred. How many of you know that God in a matter of days can make your worst enemy become your best friend? That's like you go to work tomorrow on Monday morning and the guy that's given you trouble for the last 15 years, you show up and he says, hey, how are you? And you're like, I'm okay. And he says, man, I brought some gumbo to work today for lunch and want you to share it with me. And you're saying, wonder what kind of poison he put in there. And it turns out it's good. And this guy that has been your worst enemy now wants you to go see a movie with him on Friday night and come over and barbecue on Saturday and see the game on Sunday afternoon after church, of course. This is exactly what God did in the first century with the church. What made that happen? The last six verses of chapter 2 conclude with a number of things the early church did that I think caused them to step out of average into the dimension beyond average. And everybody saw it. And everybody started wanting what they had. The Bible says, Acts 2.42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I talked on that last week. They did not compromise their message like many are doing today. They preached the Bible. You say, but man, it's kind of gotten unpopular. Hello, they had just crucified Jesus a few days before. It was pretty unpopular then. But they didn't compromise. They were willing to lay their lives down. And they preached the word of God, and that was the basis of their message. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. That's very interesting to me because even the very first Lord's Supper was given in a home. They actually shared the Lord's Supper in homes rather than the church. And they gave themselves to prayer. 
Acts 27, 13 says, and when the wind blew, south wind blew softly. Now, let me leap forward into the book of Acts, a number of chapters. Paul has been taken prisoner, is being sent to Rome, where he's going to go before Caesar, and ultimately he will be beheaded. And he's a prisoner on board this ship with other prisoners. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, they were waiting for that wind so they could sail. The captain led them out. They put out to sea. They sailed close by Crete, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurachlidon. How many of you have ever set sail to do something? And all of a sudden, a storm came up out of nowhere. Verse 29, then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they were being pushed toward the rocks. They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. It was an extremely strong wind if they had to drop four anchors off the stern. That's the back of the boat. And they prayed for day to come. This is hardened sailors. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship because they thought they were going down, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, you know what that is? That's a small boat. They have this big boat, the ship. Now there's a small rowboat. And they're thinking we're going to escape and leave all these people to die. This ship can't get over the rocks. A small skiff has a very shallow draft. It doesn't sit deep into the water like a ship does. The ship would have its bottom ripped out by the coral rocks. Not so the skiff. So they got into the skiff thinking under pretense of putting anchors from the prow. They said, we're going to go put some anchors from the prow. That's the boat, the front of the boat. Now they've got four of them at the back. And then Paul turned to the centurion who was in charge of all of this and his soldiers and then said, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You've got to stay in the ship to be saved. We've been talking about how even a casual reading of the history of the New Testament church reveals that the early church and the early disciples were so blessed and fulfilled that they became living testimonies of the goodness of God. People were turning away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees in great numbers, multitudes, to join the church because they saw the early believers living in the dimension beyond average when they themselves were firmly stuck in average. Amen. It's tragic today that that element of persuasiveness, that free advertisement for the gospel, if you please, is missing from the lives of many believers. They too are stuck in average. Amen. Let's be truthful. They're saved on their way to heaven. I'm talking to some in this room right now. There's, your, your, your salvation and your destination is not in question. But when I, I mentioned that my subject this morning, living in the dimension above average, you said, wish that was me. Because you know it's not. Many believers today are not fulfilled and happy. And they remind me, forgive me if I tell a Boudreaux joke, okay? Cajun joke. You all know I'm from Louisiana. And I am from a Cajun background. I got Cajun blood. Thibodeau was passing by the bar on the way home from work. Forgive that reference to a bar too. And he saw his good friend Boudreaux gulping down one shot right after another and wondering what was happening. Tib confronted Boudreaux. Hey, Boot, what's going on? You drinking like you either had something bad happen or you celebrating? 
What is it, Shah? And Boudreaux answered, it's my wife, Clotilde. She done run off with my best friend. Hey, wait a second, said Tib. I thought I was your best friend. Boudreaux smiled and said, not anymore. He is. Amen. (laughs) I bet there's some people that wish they could exchange their lives. Not their wives. I said their lives. For someone else's. Shouldn't be that way. It ought to be people looking at you saying, I wish I had your life. I believe the last six verses of Acts 2 tell us why they stepped into the dimension beyond average. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. I want to speak this morning for the next few minutes from this subject, needed fellows in your ship. You need some fellows in your ship. Fellowship. With the exception of the church, that's a word you never hear used in the world anymore. Vocabulary of the world doesn't include the word fellowship. You'd never hear unbelievers say, I'm going down to the bar and fellowship. A group of teenagers would never say, we're going to go to McDonald's and hang out and fellowship. <laughs> they might say, we're going to hang out, chill, floss, decompress or something, but they would never say they're going to fellowship. The only place you're going to hear that word is right here in church. But though, though the word itself is not used anymore, the need for fellowship still exists in a profound way. Every human being is created with a deep need to have meaningful relationships. When God declared that it was not good that man would be alone, he was not just addressing man's marital status. We need fellows in our ship. Amen. Fellowship means that you belong to a group of people, listen up, who are committed to going through life's journey with you. And you're committed to journeying with them. Not only means that you have a social group that you belong to, but that others are not having to face life alone because you are also there for them. The word fellowship is actually traced all the way back to the 12th century, and it is a word picture. Many of the words in our vocabulary are actually pictures of circumstances that were very real. It is a picture of the early settlers, or uh, sorry, sailors, setting out on a journey with other seamen who together were facing the uncharted and dangerous oceans to reach a shared destination. In today's world with GPS technology, it's easy to forget that they didn't have sonar, they didn't have radar, they didn't have maps of the oceans in those days. In fact, the rest of the world had not even discovered North America yet or South America. Amen. You didn't know where dangerous reefs were that were waiting to rip the bottom out of the hull of the ship and send you straight to the bottom or where howling storms were building. And you're sailing blissfully and ignorantly right into a situation that's going to cause with mountainous waves and torrential rains and wind, your little ship to go under and you to lose your life. You see, you couldn't stay awake by yourself 24 hours a day 
watching what was going on. You needed other people in your ship with you to share the responsibilities of watching. Hence the word fellows in the ship or fellowship. Many people do not even know what this lecture and its name comes from. It's called a pulpit. Many people do not realize that's a nautical term as well that goes all the way back to those days. Because in those times before they had charts and sonar and all of this and they could see the bottom of the ocean, there was a prow that extended from the front of the, the ship. And if you go down to the marina, you'll still see that on many of the small yachts and boats. There's a prow that goes out in front and it's got a handrail around it. Well, that's how all the early ships were built. And when they were sailing in dangerous waters, somebody walked out on that precarious post and held on for dear life, watching the waves to see if they could read where there might be reefs just ahead. And they would say, there's reefs over to the left, go to the right. No, no, wait a minute. We're going to have to go this way. And they would shout the words back to the helmsman who was steering the ship, and they would be able to navigate through these dangerous waters. That's what this is called. It's called a pulpit. That was what they called that extension that was on the front of that ship that the man had to get on, you know, walk out on and hold on to to find the way. That's my job. That's the job of this staff because you don't always know what lies just ahead. They're dangerous reefs that are willing, waiting to rip the bottom out of your marriage, rip the bottom out of your finances. Hello, somebody. And right now it's smooth sailing. You say, I don't need to worry about that. But it's my responsibility to teach you the word of God because it's the only map that will guide you through the storms of life and help you come out the other side to the destination you're headed toward. Fellowship literally means there's some other fellows in the ship. And I can't stay out here on this thing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The six months that we're traveling across this journey because it took months to sail to some of their distant destinations. And no matter how tired I get and how much I try to hold my eyes open, I know that I'm not going to be able to watch for everything. And there's a storm brewing out there. And I'm going to be so tired and weary that I've got to lay down and close my eyes and I need somebody else to take my place. Another fellow in the ship. You hear what I'm talking about? To help watch out. No man John Donne, the poet said, pastor poet, is an island unto himself. Every man is a part of the continent, a part of the main. Therefore, do not ask for whom the bell tolls, for it tolls for thee. Every one of us are inextricably tied together. And we find meaning in life, not through our possessions, but through our relationships. First, our relationship with God, and then our relationships with one another. You need me, and I need you. Because there will come storms in your life. The story in the book of Acts describes the storm that Paul says they encountered as they set sail. Paul on board a, as a prisoner. And some wanted to abandon the ship. And Paul said, you're going to lose your life if you do. 
You need the fellows in the boat. You need fellowship. If you stay with a ship, you'll survive. Hello, somebody. One of the most important principles I've learned as a pastor is that you can go through the storm, but the storm doesn't have to be in you. Amen. The ship may be in the storm, but the storm doesn't have to get in the ship. Churches even go through storms, but hear what I'm talking about. Somebody said, I'm going to bail. You better not. Because you get out in that little old dinghy out there by yourself, it's going to break to pieces on the rocks. The storm is present, true. And the ship is in the storm, but the storm is not in the ship. Your marriage will get in a storm. Do you hear what I'm saying? It can be smooth sailing today in your finances or in your prayer life. And how many of you have ever wakened up after a great weekend and it hits on Sunday morning with the winds howling and, and the storms tossing and you hardly know which way is up. Amen. That's when you need fellowship. Fellowship means meaningful relationships. And these are far more important than most of us realize. Years ago, the famous artist Andy Warhol spoke of everyone's 15 minutes of fame. This generation thinks far differently than that. Andy Warhol was talking about somewhere in the course of your life, you know, you're going to have your little place where people look at you, whether it's achievements in a job or, or whatever it may be, recognition in a church or community, you'll get your little 15 minutes of fame. This generation doesn't think like that. When surveys were done to ask millennials recently what their number one goal in life was, do you know what it was? Over 80% responded by saying, my number one goal is to be famous. And when asked about their second major goal, 50% said it was to be wealthy. Wealthy. You see, there are many reasons that people think like that today in the millennial generation. Reality shows are one. They have had a huge impact on the way people think. Millennials are accustomed to watching people be famous for being famous. They haven't done anything to be famous. And when the same interview, uh, interviewers ask, what are you going to do to be famous? Nothing, I just want to be famous. What are you going to do to be wealthy? I just want to be wealthy. Amen. And so there are people that are rich and famous just for being rich and famous. And that has caused people to think that is a way to succeed in life. But what does it really take to be happy? What does it really take? What if you could watch people over the course of their entire lives and learn from watching them what it really takes to be fulfilled and complete? Did you know that there's an amazing study begun at Harvard University, pull it up, Google it, called the Study for Human Development that was started in 1938. It is an ongoing study that continues to this very day. The oldest that we know of that exists anywhere in the world. And it has tracked the lives of 724 men year in, year out. Beginning 79 years ago unto the present. Asking them year in, year out about their lives, their work, their health. Giving them physical examinations. Their home lives, their marriages, their kids. And asking them what brought them happiness and what caused them pain. There are only 59 of the original 724 men still alive. Those men are now in their 90s. You think you could learn something from people that have lived that long? I'll tell you what. The results are eye-opening.
Many of these men had the same desire that this generation has to be famous and make money. And you know what? Some of them got there. One of them was the president of the United States. Some of them became wealthy financiers and business owners. Most of them did not, however. Do you know that in the interviews that followed over the years, that the study found that it wasn't the wealth and it wasn't the fame or the lack thereof that determined if these men were happy and fulfilled. Without exception, the study revealed that the thing that brought them the most joy in life were their healthy and meaningful relationships of both family and friends. Those with painful relationships hurt more and experienced the most dissatisfaction. Even if they were wealthy, their lives were more miserable. Even if they were famous, they were more miserable. And yet some of those without fame and money had good marriages and good friends, and they felt their lives were hugely successful. Equally fascinating was the fact that those who began the study as train wrecks, because some of them did. Some of them came from inner Boston. Some of them were addicts. Some of them were, were on drugs and, and alcoholics and messed up lives and, and had spent time behind bars. But guess what? When they got in healthy relationships, do you know what happened? They left all of that behind because healthy friends can pull you out of a life that is self-destructive. They got off on the wrong foot, but ended up on the right one. But some of those on the right foot got off on the right foot, ended up in relationships that were destructive. And do you know what happened to them? They ended up as drug abusers and alcoholics and some committed suicide, proving that it wasn't the money and it wasn't the fame that will had the greatest impact on your life. It's your relationships. This study helps us understand one reason the early believers were so happy. They had other fellows in their ship. They continued in fellowship. Their relationships grew. Several quick observations about fellowship. Number one, we all need fellowship. You might not think you do. But we all do. Vance Packard calls America a nation of strangers. And studies reveal that four out of ten experience feelings of intense loneliness. Not just loneliness, but intense loneliness. Our American culture produces people who more closely identify with characters on a weekly TV series than they do their own next door neighbors. It's the truth. And people think that, listen up young people, that because they have Facebook friends, that they have relationships. Somebody one time boasted to me, I've got over 10,000 Facebook friends. You know what I did? Out of the side of my mouth, I said, I doubt it. You think those are your friends? Send each one of them a request to send you a dollar and see how many of them unfriend you right then and there. Amen. You see, everywhere you look, there are signs that are people are hungering for somebody to take an interest in them and to have a sense of family, especially in this fractured world that we live in. Why do you think things ever got off the ground? It's because they didn't have a home life. Kids didn't have a home life. They looked for a family, a surrogate family. 
Every week, this sweet little old lady waited in line at the post office to buy two stamps. And one day, she got to the counter. The postal worker told her, ma'am, you know, you don't have to wait in line to buy stamps. You can get them from that machine right over there in books of 20. The little old lady responded, yes, but the machine doesn't ask me about my arthritis or my grandson. Everybody needs somebody to care. Even in a church, you can be alone. Are you hearing me? I'm talking to people that are sitting on these pews that do not feel a connection right now. I'm serious. You can literally be alone in the middle of a crowd. Look at Luke 9, 18. And it came to pass as he, Jesus, was alone praying, his disciples were with him. Did you get that? He was alone praying, but his disciples were with him. And we don't know if it meant the 12 or because he had 70 disciples. And from them, he chose 12 that became the leaders. But usually where he went, he had 70 with him that he was training. So we don't know if it was 12 people around him or 70, but we do know this. That he felt alone in the middle of a crowd. And has that ever happened to you? Have you ever stood there with your Dixie coffee cup or your Coke Zero and looked around and said, I feel alone in this place? When there's a function or a party or a funeral or you know what I'm talking about. Everybody needs fellowship. You need fellows in your ship. Secondly, fellowship brings strength. Look at Ecclesiastes 4 and 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Amen. There's a synergistic effort that when people are together, they get a lot more done. That's why God looked at Adam and said, God's not doing such a good job. Let me create a help meet for him. Help meet. And Adam's productivity increased because now he had a reason to work. You hear what I'm saying? When you feel connected and bonded and you've got family that loves you and kids at home, oh, gee, I remember that when my son Jonathan was born, and that's been 47 years ago, but when I held that little guy in my arms, I thought, buddy, I better get with the program. I got some work to do because I got a son to raise. In an old Peanuts cartoon, Lucy walked into the room. Anybody remember Peanuts? The cartoon strip, Charles Schultz, that was a great cartoon strip. Lucy was this domineering, mean-hearted girl, older sister to Linus. And she walked into the room and demanded that her brother change TV channels. Let me show you why you need fellowship. You get more done. What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, ask her little brother Linus? And Lucy said, these five fingers... Individually, they are nothing. But when I curl them together in this single unit, they are a force to be reckoned with. What channel do you want, sighed Linus. And as he got up to leave, he looked at his fingers and said, why can't you guys ever get organized like that? That's the power of teamwork. If you have somebody that's a fellow in your ship, you get more done. Together, we're a force to be reckoned with. Alone, we're capable of very little. 
Fellowship also provides support. Ecclesiastes 4.10, if one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Are you hearing me? And do you know you're going to fall at some point in your life? Because we all do. A good man falls seven times and gets up again. That's what the Bible said. You don't know when it's coming. You're on the top of the world one minute and the rug's yanked out from underneath you the next. And you're doing good. Your finances are good. You lose a job. You lose a house. We have people in this room, this building right now that lost houses during the recent recession, lost jobs during the recent recession. It hurt. You fail. But you know what? If you've got somebody there in your ship with you, they help you get back on your feet. Oh, I wish I could hear an amen right now. Because you are going to get knocked down somewhere in your life. Maybe it's a bad diagnosis. Maybe it's one of the kids goes crazy for a little while. And you need somebody to walk through that with you. I can tell you this. I've been through some serious storms. 24 surgeries. Rear-ended more times than I can remember. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt and had it autographed. Amen. I'm serious. I thank God for people that were in my ship with me. That cared about me because sitting alone, trying to recover by yourself is a miserable state of existence. Amen. When you have someone who is with you in difficult times, it helps you more than you could ever know. I'm being honest with you. I'm your pastor. I'm supposed to walk in here. Praise God. Hallelujah. Everything's hunky-dory and fine. Thank God. There have been times I've walked in here and I have to tell you the truth. Things have not always been the greatest. And that brings me to my next point. Fellowship provides warmth. Say warmth. Ecclesiastes 4 and 11. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm But how can one be warm alone? Never will forget a night I spent in a motel in South Bend, Indiana when I was traveling as an evangelist on my way by myself to preach a meeting. And the heat did not work in that motel and it was late and there was snow almost up to the eaves of the the hotel. And I took the curtains off of the bed, I mean off the windows. I covered up with everything. I slept in my clothes. I was wanting mama to be there with me that night because two can, (laughs) anybody listening, can I I get a witness right now, amen? You've been there too, huh? Anytime one of God's people gets separated from the family of believers, our fire begins to go out and our hearts become cold. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Are you hearing this? But encouraging one another. One of the most important reasons the church meets weekly is that it stirs the fire within us. Within us. Listen, you don't stay faithful to the house of God. Your fire begins to go out. It goes out. 
I don't care how much Bible you know and how much you pray, your fire begins to diminish. When I was just a little guy raised in a church that ran up on a good Sunday, 29. Serious. Little old church. Most of them my relatives. And the rest were old ladies. Had one man in the church, and that was my granddad. I'm not making that up. I remember the pastor telling a story that I shall never forget. I remember it to this day, and that has been years ago. A pastor went to visit a member of his church who had begun to regularly miss the attending of church services each weekend. It was winter, and when the pastor arrived... He greeted the man. The man had been sitting by his fireplace enjoying the warmth of the coals. Anybody remember those days? Y'all know I was raised by my grandmom. She didn't have central heat or space heaters. We had one fireplace. And you would get as close to it as you could and burn on the front side and freeze on the back side. Y'all remember those days? You, You were raised there too. Okay. Amen. This man was sitting by the fireplace, so the pastor went over and took a chair beside him, never said a word about him missing church, and just took the tongs that you use to move the coals of the fire around and reached into the fireplace among the coals and took one of the coals out and just set it on the hearth, put the tongs up, and never said a word about that man's failure to attend church. And in a few minutes... That burning coal that had a flame of fire coming from it, when he took it out, the fire went out, it turned black and got cold, and the next thing you know, there was no warmth in it at all. And the pastor just looked at that coal, and the man's attention was drawn to it. And without saying a word about that man not missing church, the pastor got his message across, and the man said, I'll be back Sunday and you'll see me from here on. Why? Because your fire will go out if you were not with other believers. Amen. I don't care how busy you are. I learned this working a public job. Seriously, I learned it working a public job. Pipe fitting, welding years ago on some and some types of the jobs that I, I worked. Turnarounds. I had to miss church. And I don't care how good your reason is, your fire still is affected. And I have come in here as a pastor with the things I've been through. During the week, my fire is not as bright. And I just, uh, you know, I'm kind of like the, uh, the guy that his mama woke him up and said, you're going to church Sunday. And he said, no, I'm not. And she said, yes, you are. And she And he said, give me two good reasons why I must. And she said, number one, you're 50. And secondly, you're the pastor of the church. Amen. (laughs) I've come into the church when I didn't feel like coming. And for me to worship was a challenge. But I come in here and somebody's singing, how great is our God. James and Tracy are leading us in worship and Robert Martinez. And the next thing you know, oh boy, I felt like I could take on a bear fight with a switch, if you know what I mean. And I was ready to march out of here. I felt like I had just graduated from Bud's training in the SEAL team. I'd take on anything. Why? Because when you're with others, they keep your fire burning. 
Finally, fellowship also provides defense and success. Ecclesiastes 4.12, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Years ago, I had a guy here that was a bodybuilder. He was a big guy, big guy. And I took some threads. I went downtown and I bought a spool of thread. And I wrapped one thread around him. I said, can you get free from that? He went, pow, two, pow, three. But I'd already prepared a little group of threads that I'd made into kind of like a rope. And I tied him up with that. And he screamed. And he couldn't get free. Because you see, one cord is easily broken. Hello, somebody. In the military and in law enforcement, and we have a lot of people in the church from both backgrounds. We have law enforcement personnel that are here right now. We have people that have served in the military, and there's a common expression that they used in the military and in law enforcement that you'll hear once in a while, and that is, I've got your six. You know what that means? Here's 12 o'clock. Here's six right here. I'm facing 12. I'm moving forward with my life. But if somebody doesn't have my six, if somebody's not watching my back, I'm vulnerable. I need some fellows in the ship. Can I hear somebody say amen? And you do too. You're even more powerful if you have more than one person in your ship. Y'all remember the movie Troy with Brad Pitt? There's a scene where the Myrmidons are fighting on the beach at Troy. They've just landed. And they assemble in battle formation with their shields held in such a way that they protect not only themselves, but they protect the soldier on this side and that side and the soldier behind them. And they fight together, and that's what fellowship does. It protects from attack. Watch this. The man wants to die. The man wants to die. How many times are you going to show it? You like that one, I guess. <laughs> Amen. Amen. The point is, they protected one another. If somebody was out there by themselves with all of those arrows flying through the air, you couldn't make it. And I want you to know the devil and his demonic spirits are launching arrows at you and you hold up your shield of faith. But when Donnie holds up his shield of faith and Tony and Catherine and the others hold up their shield of faith, I, as your pastor, I'm part of a group that's stronger than I am if I stand by myself and so are you. I'm finishing. The early church grew because they continued in fellowship and fellowship is an important part of our spiritual growth development. So much so that I've tasked the staff to create opportunities for more fellowship to occur. One of those coming up is the 
the, the, the 30 days to elevation that starts the first week of August. Another is the men's conference. I've got confirmed right now. It's already confirmed. Remy Adeliki, ex-SEAL team member, just got out four years ago. Starred in the last two Transformer movies, Bring Your Friends. He's a very committed child of God. I've got a man that right now is Greg Horwitz. He's, he's a U.S. SEAL team Navy chaplain and pastor. These guys know how to be a man. Amen. Not only that, I got David Parker coming from Chattanooga, hundreds of millions of dollars, owns Covenant Trucking. The guy knows how to build a business. I.'ve got G.F. Watkins coming, who built his church strictly on men's ministry. Others that are coming. We're going to have a Holy Spirit encounter at the end of it. And that's only just a small part of what's going on. Why are we doing this? Because we want to create a context where men can then begin to get to know each other. Amen. You see, a large church has superiority in a number of ways above a small church. And that's not demeaning when I say that to small churches. We can offer far more services to our members and to the community than a small church can. A larger church has more funds with which to reach the world through missions and to minister to children at home. Small churches have very limited funds. They struggle to pay the light bill. Lord, churches are able to draw from a much bigger pool of talent and are able to do things with greater excellence. A small church has to work with what's there. We've had a couple of technical problems this morning. You heard that during the singing and the worship, one of the speakers, there was a problem with it. And I watched as James very quickly jumped from his guitar, went over there and got that fixed. And you see, Somebody with lesser excellence would have stopped right there and been stymied by that and thought, this is making me look bad. But they plowed right through it and never missed a lick. Amen. A large church can help orphans and the needy. It can build churches in impoverished parts of the world like Africa and India like we do. Its worship services are more uplifting because of the spiritual impact created by many believers worshiping together. Never will forget first promise keepers meeting I went to in Atlanta and they packed that stadium out and there were every kind of pastor there from Baptist to Lutheran to Mennonite I know because I met them around me and as we started worshiping in men as men tears started streaming down their face and I I remember it right now because tears were running down mine there's something about men getting together And there's something about ladies getting together. There's something about a crowd getting together. Can I hear an amen? But let me tell you where a Lord's church struggles. Lord's churches have a weakness. And that weakness is that people get lost in the crowd. And they come here and they're not connected. They don't feel connected to others. We've tried many things through the years to correct this problem. I've listened to people talk about cell groups. We tried it here. Worked in Korea. Never worked here. We even tried, you know, having Cesar Castellanos come in. Now pastors, 200,000 in Colombia. He came and spoke for us. The G12 movement that he started, which was Christ took 12 men, mentored them. Let's use the same concept. That's what he built his church on. We're great there. Didn't do so well here. We plateaued. And then I began to realize there's a reason why. You know what we always do as a church? We say... Everybody come and get excited about what we are excited about and think is important. And so folks show up, but they have no passion for it. 
And so they don't stay long. And what we should have been doing was finding out what is their passion and putting them together with other people with the same passion and then putting Jesus in the middle of it. Amen. Let me show you what I'm talking about right now. That, by the way, is called tribes. Tribes. You can read the books on it. It's the latest business, business technology. Apple is a tribe. Their whole strategy is set up on this basis. You know what a tribe is? It's something that its members have great passion for. Doesn't have to be computers or anything. It can be anything. Bowling, fishing, anything. Next, they have a visionary leader. And number three, they communicate regularly. And social media makes it very easy to do this these days. You don't believe Apple is a tribe? They're going, when they announce the next iPhone coming out, people will sleep on the sidewalk outside the Apple store to be there when it opens to get one. That is a tribe. They are passionate. But I got news for you. There are folk in this building that are just that passionate about what you love. Come on, be real. Oh, I'm sanctified. I, I care for Jesus only. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Amen. Look, I was raised in the marshlands of Louisiana. I duck hunted every day the season was open. I know there are folk that needed to be saved, but I still took off and duck hunted. I'd go preach at night. Have to prop my eyelids open almost. But in the morning, I was in the blind. And I want to tell you, if you've never duck hunted, to this day, it's been 30 years. I'm in my 30th year here, and I haven't duck hunted since I've been here. Went out once or twice with a guy, but there was nothing. That was when I first came. 30 years since I've really been duck hunting. And do you know, on a cold December morning, when I wake up and that north wind is... And you look up and it's overcast. I want to tell you something. My blood begins to run hot in my veins. And I remember the sound before dawn when those ducks would fly into the decoys and you'd hear the wing. And then sploosh. I remember that every December. There's not a morning in December that I get out of bed that into the middle of January. I'm passionate about that. How many fishermen do we have here today? Anybody like fishing? Let me see. Come on, raise your hand. Look at that. All over the place. All right, ladies. How many of you like shopping? Be honest. I know. How many of you have a PhD in shopping? Raise both hands and a foot. Amen. How many of you like going to movies? No, it's okay. We're sanctified, but you can go to movies these days. Amen. God changed his mind, I guess. I don't know. Forgive me. I'm having too much fun. I'm sorry. You have to know how I was raised. Amen. How many of you like going out to a good restaurant? Bowling. Riding a motorbike. Old cars. Investing. Watching the stock market. There are things all across this audience that you already are passionate about. All we got to do is get connected with other believers with the same passion and you've got a tribe. That's what I'm asking us to learn to do. 
You say, how's that going to evangelize the world? Simple. Because you got guys that you know that are just as passionate about that as you are, but they're not saved. So you bring them. And here's the thesis. We're salt. We're light. We're yeast. We change what we touch. It doesn't change us. We change them. I believe I could go teach somebody how to raise grapefruit for 12 weeks. And by the time I'm done, they're going to want what I've got because I'm living the life beyond average. Amen. Amen.